Good evening. It's uh, a great pleasure and uh, privilege to talk with you tonight. Um, as you know, I'm not a Vipassana teacher. My, uh, my roots are in the Mahayana tradition. And um, I came up kind of through Zen and then into the Vajrayana and the Tibetan uh, practices. But, of course, the heart of the Dharma is essentially the same in all of these uh, traditions of practice. I remember once um, hearing uh, Choigam Trumpa, who founded the Shambhala and uh, the Naropa Institute. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the Tibetans, they do these wonderful and uh, sometimes elaborate uh, empowerments and teachings. And there are deities, and they're peaceful, and they're wrathful. And, and um, so someone asked him at the end of one of these um, teachings, is, said, you know, are you saying that these teachings are uh, uh, more important um, or more relevant than the Four Noble Truths? And Chuegam Trumpa stopped there for a moment and said, no, the Four Noble Truths are the foundation of the Buddha Dharma. They form the heart of what we are really practicing and why we are practicing. The Buddha often said, it's, um, I teach the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And so in this way, you know, we see the connection between you know, these more elaborate uh, cultural practices that come from these wonderful uh, traditions that, uh, of course, are represented by so many great teachers in the uh, Vajrayana tradition and, of course, the Dalai Lama, too. Now, um, in a Dharma talk, in, in the presentation of Dharma, um, I see that there may be three um, aspects of, of that teaching or that presentation. Now, the first and most obvious aspect is to inform. So there's information that, uh, that we get from, uh, from, our, from the teachings from our teachers. And um, this also helps to bring about um, perspective and understanding, yes? So an important aspect. And here um, at Spirit Rock, we have the, the great, wonderful um, opportunity because they're so, these particular kinds of, this kind of information is really laid out in a very intelligent and relevant way, really assisting our, our practice. Um, another aspect, an important aspect of presentation of Dharma practice for us is to inspire us, to inspire us to, uh, in our practice. Um, so that we can continue our, our deepening of appreciation of the Dharma and also to illuminate the teachings. So when we're inspired, um, this kind of opens the, the gateway and the energy for us to, um, to be 
sincere and, uh, and diligent in our practice. Of course, 70%, right? <laughs> <laughs> the third aspect um, that I would point to is the direct transmission of energy and vitality of the Dharma. And this, of course, is embodied presence. And this is the, the nature of our undertaking together in this retreat that, uh, that Sharda has so beautifully and skillfully created. Um, in the uh, transmission, this aspect of transmission, we actually connect with the lineage of practitioners. Um, and in most every tra uh, tradition, there's a sense of transmission, of, of uh, getting uh, the Dharma in a, in a very direct, we could almost say visceral way. It's a way that we understand things, that we've been beginning to understand things directly in our bodies. And I'll talk more a little bit more uh, of that as we go along tonight. But the, um, the connection to lineage is an important aspect of the way that we think about sangha. So we often relate to sangha as, you know, we're a sangha here. We're, we're a community. We've come together in this in this retreat, and we are a sangha. And um, practicing here at Spirit Rock, we're part of a greater sangha, too. And when we go and practice with our POE fellows in the morning, where we merge and we create uh, uh, another sangha. But also think that over time, there have been communities of people that have come together, and teachers that have been committed, just as we are, to um, um, understanding and living, embodying the teachings of the Buddha. So the, this direct connection with the lineage, with our lineages, with our teachers, and with, um, and with those that have practiced sincerely before is a great, wonderful thing to connect to. So sometimes when, you, when we're sitting, we often have just the feeling of us sitting. But we're here in a wonderful place at Spirit Rock and have the opportunity to practice in this particular container of retreat. And it is actually supported by thousands, a couple of thousands of years, hundreds of years of practitioners bringing their um, insight, bringing their sincerity, bringing their heartbreak, bringing their um, every, everything that they have in their lives. We're supported by, we're actually gifted with in a certain way. So um, my, one of my main um, meditation teachers is uh, a man named um, Lama Wangdor, and he lives in uh, Solpema. And he's uh, of the lineage of the, uh, he's a Zogchen and Mahamudra teacher, which means Nyingma and Karmakagyu. And um, he is a wonderful, very direct, uh, energetic teacher. And um, uh, to kind of carry this theme of connection over time uh, with lineage, one time I was doing a teaching with him which was called the Corde Rushen. It's kind of a, 
oh, I suppose it's an esoteric teaching, but, it, you know, um, in part of the process of this teaching, he gave uh, um, a sense of this. He said, okay, now I'm going to open my heart and I'm going to connect a stream of, of energy, of heart energy, to everyone in this space. And then he said, I want you to also feel that that's connected with my teacher and with his teacher, going all the way back to the Buddha. And so he sat there, and, um, and we um, just connected with that, and I wept because it was so, uh, so wonderful, visceral to me. And all the time, every time I sit down, there's a certain way that I connect with my teacher in this way. And I open my heart, and, you know, and I feel that connection with each of you. That's part of, um, you know, our, 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 our meditation, yes, is about internalization, but it's also about connection. It's also about this wonderful lineage that has connected with um, Sangha. So, Lama Wangdor, thanks. Um, important in the Mahayana teachings and um, relevant to what we are practicing and undertaking as a, as a study and as an embodiment here, there are two aspects of the teachings that I think are, are important. And again, if I say something that is, that is counter to your understanding or your, or, your, or your path, please just take me with a grain of salt. And if there's something that, that works for you, uh, by all means, it's yours. And if not, just let everything else go. So um, in these teachings, the aspiration for enlightenment has been very important. In fact, it's called one of the uh, foundational grounds of our practice. So that when we begin to practice, we aspire to enlightenment as a possibility. We think of the Buddha's teachings and the fact that he gained some sense of, of liberation, of, uh, of enlightenment, and, um, and that that is also possible for us. Um, in this aspiration for enlightenment is connected to uh, what is called invoking bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a wonderful word. It means the awakened heart. The awakened heart, the luminous mind of the Dharma. So we, we begin by um, invoking this ideal, this wonderful cause. And it's the ground of the bodhisattva ideal, recognizing that we don't practice just for ourselves, but recognizing our interconnectedness with all of life, we practice for the benefit of others as well. So um, I want to read for you something that we often start our Dharma talks with in the Zen tradition called the Song of Zazen. The Song of Zazen is by uh, a, uh, an old master, Master Hakuin. So I'll read this, and then, I'll, then I'd like to point out a, a few 
interesting things about the Song of Zazen. Sentient beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. It is like ice and water. Apart from water, no ice can exist. Outside of sentient beings, where do we find the Buddhas? Not knowing how near the truth is, we seek it far away. What a pity. We are like a person <clears throat> in the midst of water who cries in thirst so imploringly. We are like <clears throat> a child of a rich house who has wandered away among the poor. The cause of our circling through the six worlds is that we are on the dark paths of ignorance, going astray further and further in the darkness. When are we able to be free from the cycle of birth and death? As for the practice of pure meditative awareness, it is beyond all our praise. Honoring the precepts, taking refuge in the three jewels, patience and generosity and countless good deeds of merit as a way of right living, all have their source in this. Those who practice this meditation even once will see all their twisted karma erased. Nowhere will they find twisted paths, but the pure land will be near at hand. To hear this truth with a humble and grateful heart, to praise it and embrace it, and to embrace and practice its wisdom brings unending blessings. If we concentrate within and testify to the truth that self-nature is no nature, we have really gone beyond vain words. The gate of the oneness of cause and effect is open. The path of non-duality and true clarity runs straight ahead. To regard the form of no form as form, whether going or returning, we cannot be in any other place. To regard the thought of no thought as thought, whether singing or dancing, we are the voice of the Dharma. How boundless the clear sky of samadhi, how transparent the perfect moonlight of the fourfold wisdom. At this moment, what more need we seek? As the truth eternally reveals itself, this very place is the lotus paradise. This very body is the Buddha. Beautiful song of Zazen. <clears throat> so I remember hearing this for the first time as a young guy. And I was uh, especially drawn to this one sentence. Those who practice this meditation, even once, will see all their twisted karma erased. <laughs> I said, okay, I haven't, I haven't practiced meditation yet. I, I can dig that. So years go by, 
And I'm wondering, you know, when is going to be this session of, of meditation where all my twisted karma gets erased? <laughs> years and years continue to go by. Those who practice this true meditation even once will see their, all their twisted, all their twisted karma erased. Dang, I'm thinking. Hakuin, what were you talking about? But then it came to me one time that when we do sit in meditation, all of our twisted karma is erased. When we sit in meditative presence and rest in this um, pure light of being, of embodied presence, in that moment, all of our twisted karma is erased. By the nature of who we are as beings, we're conditioned beings. So it doesn't just, you know, disappear. We're always going to have the past that we had. We're always going to be conditioned by circumstances and so on. But when we sit in meditative presence, when we relax into this pure essence of who we are, of who we all are together, all of our twisted karma is erased. <laughs> it took me a few years on that one. <laughs> so, as we, as we work and listen to the teachings and listen to the Dharma, there is this possibility of listening that's called pure listening or just listening. And I'd like to distinguish that for us because I think um, it's a wonderful way to practice this same quality of open um, presence, embodied presence. So um, I can think of at least three ways that we can listen. Certainly, we can listen negatively, we can listen positively, and then we can listen purely. So in the way that we listen negatively is when we listen uh, with a lot of, uh, with maybe with prejudice, with anger, with distrust, with uh, disgust, with um, all the ways that we can listen negatively to someone. Uh, listening to President Bush or, or, or someone, you know, we, there's, there's a certain way that we have an immediate negative did I actually say that? Okay. Uh, immediate negative kind of take of him. I should make that personal. <laughs> because I'm sure. Um, but there, I mean, there would be other people that you could probably name in your life that you could see that there's a way in which negative listening takes place. And then there's also positive listening. And positive listening is affirmative. You know, oh yes, you're good and and that's, that's right, and, uh, you know, uh, it's empathetic in some ways, and um, uh, very positive, very uh, affirming. And then there's what's called pure listening. And pure listening is the way that we simply allow what, to be present in, uh, in embodiment, feeling and sensing, 
and allowing what is ever, whatever is taking place in the field of our hearing to be exactly as it is, without the need to change a thing. So pure listening, you could practice listening to me purely right now. And that is, you let go of judgments of it being one way or another. You let go of, um, of having this be positive or negative, but you simply take in the presence of the sound and of the words. It doesn't mean that you're not making sense of it. It's just that you don't have to follow down the line of thought to make something up about it. So um, this morning, uh, Sharda was talking in our instructions about how the mind works. And uh, there was a very wonderful question about, you know, we have the sense gateways and then we have the, um, the sixth sense that is called the mind. So why is it so that this is a, this is a sense? Well, we can see from our conditioning that, that we, um, uh, we flavor what we perceive through the mind. And this is um, really wonderfully elucidated in, in the, uh, the links of dependent origination, which I won't get into tonight because it's a, it's a very deep and complex teaching in itself. But what it is um, showing is that conditioning flavors perception. So that's why it's considered a, uh, a sense factor. So you can actually practice pure listening at just about any time. You can, uh, and that is just when you recognize, relax through your body, relaxing your mind, and um, just allow what is happening, allow what is happening in perception to be as it is. Now, what's the, what would be the benefit of doing this? Well, perhaps it's pretty clear that uh, with the filter of our awareness, with the filter of our mind present, that we may not really listen to people sometimes that we're actually listening to our own filters, that we're not um, uh, directly taking in, in a respectful way, what someone has to say to us. So we could, you know, in a certain way, we could listen purely to a speech by a politician, say. And, uh, and, ta and by taking that in, um, we're not making up anything. We listen directly to what there, what there is. And it doesn't mean that, that we don't use our facility of critical reason and reason. We certainly do. But um, in the pure listening, as you listen purely, the need to have it be somehow other than it is evaporates, disappears. And in that way, we can more clearly apprehend what is present. So um, this is kind of moving toward understanding the confluence of meditation and qigong, of our energy arts practices. As this is a retreat on embodied presence, the, uh, the embodied part is 
um, the way that we are relating in, in a field of knowledge that is not necessarily cognitive. Our cognitive knowledge, very important. Critical reasoning concepts, very, very important. But when we practice Qigong, and when we practice our yogic practices taught by you know, skillful teachers, of which there are many, um, we learn that we can directly contact experience in the body and a field of knowledge and a way of knowing that is um, present for us before concepts. For instance, if I ring the bell here, one of the things that we may do is say, oh, the bell. Or, uh, oh, that's a nice sound, or that's a harsh sound. Or we have some interpretation of that, uh, of that perception. So the, the possibility is to listen purely, directly to the, exp to, the, to the sound before language arises. So let's do that for just a moment. So we're going to allow ourselves to listen deeply. Simple, pure sound, direct perception. So our Qigong practice, our Qigong is a meditative art, and it is about this conscious embodiment. It is the practice that honors and um, recognizes, cultivates, and nourishes this energy aspect of our being. And as I've said, you know, we recognize ourselves to be beings, uh, physical beings. We know ourselves to be physical beings, uh, uh, emotional beings, mental beings. Um, but this practice of embodiment and the yogic practices as well um, teach us that we're also energy beings, that there is an underlying matrix of uh, energy that holds together this uh, mystery of physicality. So Qigong in this way is a complete meditative practice in itself and, and is, uh, has always been a, a wonderful complement to our traditional um, sitting postures. And as we've learned uh, and practiced together this week, we see that um, you know, of course, yes, we do the sitting posture, but we also have been working with the standing meditation posture. And this is a very powerful um, regenerative and transformative posture for working with meditative presence. The lying down process and practice posture uh, modality of meditation as well as we've kind of worked in the uh, deep level of dissolving.
the practice, uh, both the yogic practices and the um, qigong practices have, uh, have really deep and long lineages. So we talked about the lineage of the Dharma, but yogic practices have as well, qigong practices. In fact, sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell the difference because uh, qigong and yoga, in a certain way, are brother and sister. Their initial um, uh, goal and their, uh, their purpose is essentially the same. And what is that? Mariana. Yes, it's yes, clearing the channels. So in in uh, in uh, the yogic tradition, they talk about the nadis, which are the the the, the energy channels of uh, of the body, and also the centers known as the chakras. In uh, qigong, coming from the Chinese tradition, uh, we talk about the meridians. And we talk about the centers, the dantians, and the, uh, the locus of the palm, and the, and the bottoms of the feet as being gateways, and so on. So these are the um, modalities of practice. Uh, the teachings present the continuity of meditation, both in stillness and in motion. This is an important concept for us in the way that we that the way that we bring our meditation practice into life. So, um, learning how to meditate while you move is a very skillful practice. So we have our more interior moments, and uh, on very deep meditative retreats, you know, a lot of the focus is way deep inside. Um, exploring uh, the satipatthana aspects you know, of mindfulness, uh, the applications of mindfulness in the, in the body and feelings and mind and dharma. Um, but as we learn to stand and then, uh, and then practice this way in which we um, uh, seamlessly flow awareness into movement, very wonderful, really skillful. And why is that? Well, I know you know. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, when we do practice in this way, we bring about well-being. We bring about um, embodied presence through uh, a self-empowering, in a self-empowering way. So the practices of yoga, the practices of qigong are about um, empowerment, about self-empowerment. And in this particular time in our uh, world history, where uh, healthcare and so on are so um, difficult in some ways, and uh, uh, it's wonderful to have a modality in which we can really learn to take care of ourselves. And these are uh, arts and sciences that have been built on thousands of years of practice in direct lineage transmission of uh, one generation to the other. So, 
Um, the cultivating of certain aspects of our meditative practice. And these are, of course, mindfulness, concentration, presence, and compassion. And you see uh, that we directly connect with those when we enter into the sense of embodied presence, this connection with embodied presence in our practice, certainly in our Qigong practice, and see the flow between um, movement and stillness, stillness and movement. In the Aikido tradition, which I um, practice and have practiced since 1971, there is a wonderful term, and it's called zanshin, Japanese word, zanshin. Zanshin means unbroken spirit. And it is the way that we flow mindful awareness in a continuity between one activity and another. And what we can notice in our practice is the places where we gap, very useful to notice the places where we gap. So when, when we're practicing movement, when you're doing your qigong, when you're doing your yoga, and you were using that as a mindfulness practice, we can observe the places where we move and then all of a sudden we lose awareness. So in the same ways we use the breath as an anchor, as, a, as a, an object of meditation, we can also use movement. We can use the forms of our activity to, um, to simply and naturally be connected with what we are doing right now. I know that sounds very Zen, but you know, Yoda said it, so I'm, I'm a believer. <laughs> Okay, um, the, uh, the background, uh, just a little bit on the background of, of the Qigong practices which arose in, uh, in China. There are very, very old and ancient texts, the, the Yellow Emperor's Guide and, um, and others that take this back several thousands of years. And this is what is called, um, these practices are essentially called medical Qigong. Medical Qigong are the practices that help to build well-being, to heal. In fact, in modern China now, the, uh, this is one of the most important modalities of practice uh, and healthcare for the Chinese. They do not have a lot of hospitals, but there are, there are many uh, Qigong practitioners and, and teachers who you can go to, who have studied the traditions of um, medical qigong, and you can get a qigong prescription. So they'll give you they'll give you practices that will work with you know with the body and with the uh, mind body continuum in certain ways. It's also very interesting for us to note these um, that this knowledge is pretty recent for us in the West. It's only really been uh, since the Cultural Revolution in the, seven, in the 1970s that um, access to these teachings have been available. In fact, for a long time ahead of that, the uh, Qigong was actually considered uh, in that 
in that Maoist era um, to be like a form of witchcraft. And so it was, uh, it was really, um, you know, you're a Qigong, are you a Qigong? No, I don't know anything about Qigong. Uh, you know, they, they really went underground quite a bit. And so, um, so these teachings are now just uh, coming to us and texts are being translated and the, uh, the confluence of Western medicine and uh, of these ancient healing modalities really offer a great promise for us at, at this time for ev evolving well-being. Hmm. Another aspect of Qigong has been uh, what's sometimes called spiritual Qigong or scholarly Qigong, and it's the practices that the ancient Taoists did and then met also with the uh, initial Buddhists that came uh, to China from India. And uh, it was the way that the, you know, the more uh, contemplative uh, practitioners took care of themselves. In fact, there's a whole story which you may or may not be aware of, of uh, this one um, Indian practitioner known as Bodhidharma who went to China and um, uh, met with the Chinese uh, emperor and, uh, and then went into meditation uh, at a Shaolin monastery, uh, meditated for many years, um, and noticed that the monks uh, that were practicing in that monastery were very weak and weren't able to sustain their concentration. So he'd brought from India um, practices um, that are known as uh, the uh, funny, funny term, but it's called the brainwashing uh, qigong, uh, and also the muscle and tendon changing qigong. So brain, the, the brainwashing qigong is a, is a practice in which, we, kind of like the dissolving that we did, that moves through the body, that lets go deeply, uh, and allows the energetic field to be open and clear. But that's just one example of that particular um, continuum. So we see that you know healing and transformation are a matter of letting go into this luminous intelligence of our true nature. Recognition of our oneness with all that is is no longer just a concept, but an immediate experience that arises simultaneously with our normal experience. So, qi, breath of life. It implies the uh, qualities of uh, universal essence, intelligence, power, sensitivity, kindness, and compassion. Of course, in India, this was known as prana, yes? And the original purpose of yoga, to open up, to prepare for meditation, to, uh, to prepare for, that, for the real yoga, the union, the, the recognition of that interconnectedness. Um, you know, in Latin, spiritus sanctus, and the Hebrew, the ruach, that uh, that uh, that said that the 
creator breathed into Adam, right? It's interesting, the root of Adam is Adama, right? Earth. So you, the breath of life opening into Earth. I think that gives a, a new and fresh perspective there. Uh, in the Greek, it was known as pneuma. Um, that essence that holds life together. Um, and among the Kunsang, the indigenous people of uh, Africa's uh, Kalahari Desert, spoke of this life force as num, num. And it was stored, apparently. They're, they had the sense of it was stored in, the, in their center. Um, very interestingly, the Australian Aborigine tradition has a root back that they follow maybe even 50 or 60,000 years. Amazing. Um, and they cultivated this life force. They have practices that cultivated this life force. And they used it um, in various ways for healing. And it was even said that they could, they could use this life force for uh, communication, for telepathic communication. And they had a, uh, their poetic allusions were around this rainbow serpent that lived in the body. And they could access this um, energy for heat and this healing transformation. Um, in the Tibetan traditions, there's the practice of tsalung. tsalung. And this is the cultivating of uh, life force to restore and regenerate the body, vitalize the mind and spirit. And perhaps you've heard of this, of the practice of tumo, which is um, the heat breath of, um, of the yogis to help to clear and purify your body. Now, um, just a little story. I had a, uh, a Tibetan, one of my Tibetan teachers is a man named Kunsum Lingpa. And Kunsum Lingpa um, was captured in 1959 uh, in, the, um, in the appropriation of Tibet by China. He was kind of a high-level yogic teacher. So they had him in prison. And, and, uh, and if you see Kunsum Lingpa today and you look at him, you'll see his hands. And he, and he hardly has any fingernails because the, the Chinese, you know, as a, as a way of torturing, they pulled his fingernails out. But his sense of equanimity is just amazing. And he told me a story, um, and told us story, a story once, of when in his capture, they just, the Chinese were, you know, um, um, trying to do him in. You know, and, and so one night um, they took him uh, and they stripped him of all of his clothes and put him outside in the cold. And you think it's cold here, think of a Tibetan night. So, uh, uh, so imagine having no clothing and being outside overnight. So they just they turned him loose outside and um, they thought, you know, surely by the morning he would be dead. So they opened the door the next day, and there's Kunsum Lingpa. He's, he, so he, he sat and he practiced his tumo practice the whole, for the whole night, and he was, you know, warm and vital. And they said, well, all right, come back in. <laughs> so, 
uh, it's just an example of the power of the breath and, and the, the uh, cultivating. Not that we're going to you know, necessarily cultivate our, our breath in this way, but to know that it's one of the possibilities. Um, and also in the Native American traditions, you know, I talked about the, the Lakota Sioux. They have um, um, a word for, for this life force called ni. And when they do uh, their purifying rituals, it's called inipi, which is the purifying of the life force. So when you go into the sweat lodge and so on like that. Of course, we know uh, the... Uh, from the Hawaiian tradition, the, uh, the kahuna. And these, uh, the kahuna are called masters of breath. Um, in the word uh, aloha, alo means uh, face to face and ha, the breath of life. So I just wanted to bring those, a few of those things together to show that in all cultures, in, in every way, um, in every tradition of human experience, in some deep way, there is this recognition of the life force. And there's also a way of direct recognition of the presence of our interconnectedness. Um, for just a moment, I'll say something about kind of the beginning of my journey here in, in the Qigong and the uh, contemplative practices. Um, I was born in the Midwest, in Iowa, of all places. But I, I was born to a family in which I had a great aunt, and uh, this was my great aunt, Leona. And Aunt Leona had been, uh, she was my grandmother's sister, she had been a missionary in China. It wasn't the typical missionary. She went to, um, to help to stop the practice of foot binding. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's kind of a horrible practice of, of, of women, of binding women's feet. And, not being able to move and so on. So she would go for seven years and come back. And she'd already been back a long time by the time I was born. And, and, uh, but she was, very, uh, she was a very um, wonderful influence on me in my early childhood. And I grew up, as I grew up in my grandmother's house, well, I was always around all these amazing artifacts from China and seeing the eight immortals and, and um, this, uh, the sand uh, soap carvings and all these other, you know, the dragons and, and all that kind of thing. So it, it opened my early interest. And so when I finally found a, a teacher in the, um, in the Kung Fu, you know, it was like I was ready. 15, at the age of 15, I started to practice and, um, and I was uh, bit pretty hard and I just continued. I've, haven't stopped yet, so I'm, I'm really loving it and recognize it as a, as a growing and as evolving practice. Um, 
The thing, one of the things that I really recognize that the, the benefits of our practice is that it activates intuition. It activates our intuition, and as we've talked about embodied presence, it is a way of accessing a field of knowledge that is, that is uh, not yet cognitive. So, in the same way that we're learning these arts for the first time, the yogic arts and the, and the qigong arts, and have access to these beautiful traditions uh, that each of the teachers uh, represent in their own unique way, we're beginning as people practicing embodied presence to learn that the way of knowledge is not always conceptual. That we can learn to drop down in our awareness, in our meditative presence, and rest in contentless wisdom. Rest in this meditative presence as a practice and that it is nourishing, and that this is, uh, that this is intelligent, and um, it brings forth a new possibility for us in uh, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we um, relate to nature, the way that we are cons you know, conservators or stewards of nature. This relationship helps to create and, and readdress our philosophical understandings. So philosophy is not just an intellectual practice, but it is a direct connected practice. And out of that, we begin to develop a sense of emotional maturity that is so important for us and for our world right now. Emotional maturity. Um, that comes with the skills of, say, pure listening, compassionate presence, tolerance of others, fair-mindedness, um, fair-minded point of view, that sort of thing. This is based in our practices of conscious embodiment. And it comes about through our meditative practice and our development over time of genuine insight. Genuine insight is the direct access through this luminous field of awareness. To that which can't be named, but is always present. Well, like Sharda, I had uh, I have a few different <laughs> Dharma talks, but um, that's essentially what I wanted to um, to share with you because um, I've really appreciated our um, our connection and our work, and I really you know honor you in your endeavor to uh, continue to open to this. Um, realization of our connectedness and, uh, and our true nature. So um, as a way of um, completing the talk tonight, I'd like to read I'd like to read a piece by Nagabuku the Snow Leopard. 
So what we'll, uh, we'll do is uh, I'll read this and then we'll just sit for a moment afterwards. Know the pure and uncontrived, uncreated, natural presence is vast and open as infinite space. It is of the quality of ten, that center point of being that is at once infinitely small and infinitely great. Everywhere it is the same always free of attraction and always free of aversion. Yet through the seeming appearance of these polarities, all phenomena arise and vanish in the ocean of becoming. Crystal clear the full expanse of appearances, yet also like a mirror that reflects with equanimity everything without judgment favoritism, or rejection. This is the luminous, intelligent nature of mind, nature of being. This is you before the first rays of light, and this is you after the stars have melted from the sky. Allow this pure presence, this pure essence, to mix with all expressions of life and habits and patterns into non-duality, undifferentiated life force, Wu Qi. Everything that arises in this expanse of abundant appearances, it doesn't matter if you make them up or experience them directly. Each are jewels of your creativity and is part of your being. And like the mirror of equanimity that represents the true nature of your mind, there is nothing to judge, accept, or reject. Recognizing that there is no separation, no division into one and another, everything that arises is blessed and is experienced as pure, radiant clarity. From the heart of pure listening, now the majesty of spontaneous being transforms and represents itself as the intelligent seed awareness of fractal logic, the inner reality of every form. All that exists, all that appears, arises from space and is always of the nature of space the unborn reality. And again, there is nothing to judge, accept, or reject. From the heart of pure listening now, the supreme creative intelligence brings all appearances forth from itself. Creative, order without rigidity, fluid yet present. Language organizes itself as the flower of communication coming from the unseen. The deeper roots are the music of the life force itself. This vibration is the ultimate creative principle. 
Everything is whole and complete in the very moment that it appears. Every thought, every form, every communication. Every awareness and creative expression, every seemingly ordinary appearance and gesture comes from this creative, intelligent presence. Conceptual analysis is the ground and the gateway to deeper understanding and appreciation. But to realize the heart of the ground and the gateway as the great natural non-duality, release conceptual analysis and allow every appearance to be exactly as it is, the natural ground of unborn space. Every thought, every shape, every sound and experience, every state of mind, every state of heart, from its first appearance in time to its dissolving into space, has always been this clear, indivisible oneness. Rest here in this clear light of mind of transcendent wisdom and infinite kindness and compassion. Welcome home to the Tao of luminous wonder. You have always lived here. Thank you so much for your kind attention. And um, we do have a period of walking now. <clears throat> 